following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. When you're wearing the right outfit, it feels good. Like good hair day kind of good. Phone charge to 100% good. Getting dressed can feel just like that when you have a Trunk Club stylist. Because not only do we send you lots of outfits and accessories, we also teach you how to style them. And since we're a Nordstrom company, you know you'll be well taken care of. Look and feel great every single day with Trunk Club. Meet your personal stylist at trunkclub.com. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B.com. I won't embarrass you by asking you, you know, how you manage passwords, but, you know, most people I do ask are, you know, it's their password hygiene is not that great. So in a world of your house full of connected things, um, you know, human weakness is going to lead to security weaknesses. Um, and so, you know, as an engineer, you're trained to debug things and you look at the issues and you, you go, like, it's, it's the people, right? So why don't we take the people out of the equation and why don't we use technology to solve these problems? And then we can have a much more secure and trusted Internet of Things. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Forbes interview. I'm your host, Steve Bertoni. On this show, we do in-depth interviews with entrepreneurs, billionaires and influencers. All right, everybody, welcome to the show. We have a very special Forbes interview podcast today. We've taken the show on the road. We are in Lisbon, Portugal at Web Summit, and we are lucky to have the CEO of, of Arm Holdings, Simon Seegers with us. Simon, thanks for joining us. Thanks, uh, Steve. Thanks did, for having me on today. Did I say that right? Yeah. All right. So Arm is a fascinating company, and I think um, a lot of our listeners are using your products right now without even knowing it. Mm-hmm. You are in everything from smartphones to Internet of Things to cloud and probably self-driving cars, not not too uh, in the distant future. So just I'd love to hear kind of about what you guys do mm-hmm. um, and what's exciting. Yeah. So um, a lot of people think of Arm as a, as a semiconductor company, but we're not. We're uh, you know, part of the semiconductor supply chain. Uh, we design and we license intellectual property uh, to semiconductor companies. Um, and that sounds very bland. I mean, really what we do is design uh, computers. We design microprocessors, uh-huh. graphics processors, anything that is uh, processing data uh, on a chip. Uh, we design these building blocks. We license them to chip companies. They wrap their own IP around them. They wrap application-specific technology around them and sell chips. Um, and as you said, uh, our technology is very, very widespread. Uh, we've been in business since the end of 1990. and. Wow. Volume really started taking off about 25 years ago, and since since then, in that 25 years, our licensees have shipped 100 billion chips containing our technology, which is a lot of chips. 100 billion chips. 100 billion. Now we used to uh, talk about you know the pervasiveness of ARM, and our founding CEO used to have this view that uh, one day there should be an ARM processor for every person on the planet. Mm-hmm. So turns out. Um, and, and don't ask me how they know this, but there have been about 100 billion people who have ever lived on planet Earth. So we've surpassed the one per person, and we've gone to one per person ever. You've gotten the whole species covered. That's uh, whole species covered. Not and bad in 25 years. It's not bad. And especially when you look at, actually, of that 100 billion, uh, 50 billion was shipped in the last four years. And the way it's growing, we anticipate another 100 billion in the next four years. Wow. So this is pretty pervasive technology. And as you say, lots of people use it every day, and they don't realize And excuse us for a moment to thank our sponsors, LifeLock and Amica. More about those sponsors later in the show. Help me understand this a little better. You don't, you said, you know, you're not a semiconductor company at all, but you build the IP and technology that goes into these things. Give me some examples of what this kind of secret sauce is and what you add to the the whole process of the computers. Yeah. So 
27 years ago, um, the company was formed as actually as a joint venture between uh, Apple and Acorn, which is mm. a British computing company. Um, Acorn had uh, built desktop computers for the educational market back in the 80s uh, and had decided that they should design their own microprocessor because uh, what was out there at the time, they, yep. they didn't want. Um, so that they designed this processor. It was very small. It was very elegant. Um, and in the, uh, well, around 1990, um, Apple were looking for a, a processor to put into a chip uh, to go into the Apple Newton, if you remember the Apple Newton. I do. Um, and as a result, the two companies got together, decided right. to spin out uh, and form arm the, the company. And the general idea was that um, putting a microprocessor into a chip which very few people were doing at the time. They were building whole chips, which were microprocessors, mm -hmm. but very few people were putting a chip in the corner, uh, sorry, a processor in the corner of a, of a more complex chip. So the founding team um, thought, hey, this is a good idea. This is probably going to be generally useful in lots of other places. Didn't know exactly where, uh, but started the company to generalize this idea of putting a microprocessor into a low-cost piece of silicon. Oh, so you had Apple and Acorn, and where, where, did, where does ARM fit in? Where did the name come from? Um, so originally, the uh, the processor architecture within Acorn was called. Um, uh, I've gone completely blank. Uh, <laughs> um, well, originally the, the company, shall I say, was uh -huh. set up to be called Advanced Risk, Risk Machines. Gotcha. Um, and over time, uh, people just abbreviated that to ARM. Uh, so when we went public, we actually changed the company name to ARM because people had forgotten about advanced risk machines, and it's an acronym within an acronym anyway. So it, it's, it's like ISPN. It's like uh, ESPN. They're just ESPN now. It doesn't stand yeah. for anything. It's just the just the letters. And you joined very early on. You were employee number sixteen. Yeah, um, I, I was working for a, a large telecoms company at the time, uh, who were in the process of getting bought, <coughs> and um, I, I was not enjoying that very much. Uh, there was not much to do that was interesting. Uh, I'd become interested in microprocessors when I was at university. And I'm reading the trade press one day, and there's this article about uh, ARM being set up as a company. And I thought, well, that's what I want to do. So I wrote them a letter saying, you know, please give me a job. And uh, they called me in for an interview, and they gave me a job. Wow. And that was, uh, yeah, there were 15 other people in the company. My day one, my then boss was literally soldering together a computer for me to use. Um, and I come from this big company with lots of infrastructure, and so I was thinking, well, this is a bit weird, and maybe this isn't going to last very long, but hey, it's going to be fun. Was it liberating to kind of go from a big behemoth to, this, to literally soldering together? Uh, what was kind of the biggest change? What was like the biggest improvement? Uh, the, the company I'd come from um, it w was was having a few issues, and as a as an employee at the bottom of the ladder, you know, really no idea about the company's strategy or direction or finances, any of that. So I joined this super small company, and it was completely open and transparent. Everyone knew everything. The CEO would come and tell us how much money we had in the bank and when we were going to go bust unless we won some business. So it was, you know, there was a real culture of everyone is in this together. And that was in the, was that 1990 you joined, 1991 uh, Early 91, yeah. So it's incredible. So, you, I mean, there's been such an evolution, obviously, not just in, you know, ARM itself, going from, you know, a scrappy startup to... You know, you were a, a CEO of a major publicly traded company. Now you're a CEO of a major private company. But also just the journey that technology's gone on. It's mm -hmm. just, it's mind-blowing. Like, if those, you know, past, you know, two decades of just, what, what was that like? What, I mean, take me through kind of that, that evolution. And when was, what was a big turning point for you guys? 
Yeah, so like, like I said, there, there was this idea that putting a microprocessor into a chip was going to be a good idea, but you know, exactly when and where, it was hard to tell. Big turning point came uh, through winning a design win with Nokia, mm-hmm. uh, who wanted to put a 32-bit microprocessor into a, a GSM cell phone, and GSM was just starting to take off. Uh, we had the right technology. We were in the right place at the right time with the right partner. It was Texas Instruments in this case. Um, and we designed a, a microprocessor specifically for this application, uh, which has ended up going in lots of places, like tens of billions of this particular processor have been manufactured, which is phenomenal. Was that one of those early Nokia kind of brick phones that were you could throw throw off a nine-story oh, yeah. uh, building yeah, and it just, just bounced back? Run over it with your car and it would still work. Yeah, what, the, those early GSM phones from Nokia. And, and everybody who got into the GSM uh, chip space mm-hmm. was looking at it saying, okay, you need a DSP, you need a microprocessor. Um, I can license this microprocessor from ARM, so they did. And so as the market expanded for uh, cell phone chips, so our business grew. But still, back then, the performance of that was was pretty low. You know, you talk about gigahertz microprocessors today. Um, that, at the time, ran at, at uh, I think it was 42 megahertz. And that happened to be a frequency within GSM uh, electronics that you could use. So 42 megahertz processor, you know, it ran Snake. You know, your address book, these real simple applications. Snake was great. Snake, absolutely, absolutely. And what was your first role at ARM when you were hired as, you know, a a young technologist? Yeah, so I was a design engineer. I I worked on some of the the chips that uh, uh, ARM had been contracted to build for Acorn as part of the spin-out process. Mm. Then I started working on the processors, started managing teams, became VP of engineering, um, I then became uh, VP of sales. So I ran, went from running our worldwide huh. engineering to running worldwide well, sales. Engineers, a, engineers are always such good salesmen. Absolutely. And, uh, and at ARM, I mean, like, I was joking the other day, everyone's in sales. Yeah. You know, we have a, um, through our partnership model and working with hundreds of companies, uh, a lot of our team are working directly with our customers, with our partners, uh, helping specify what the next generation of technology is. And in those early days, you know, I was doing that. Plus, we were kind of making up as we went along how we were going to license this technology, how the business model was really going to work. So I got a lot of early exposure to working with customers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when um, my then boss suggested I should go from running engineering to running sales, I thought at first, that's a crazy thing to do. <laughs> um, but actually, it was great. It's hugely beneficial to me, the experience I got, um, you know, understanding uh, what customers wanted and, and the struggle of you know, convincing somebody else to put their money in your bank account. You know, this is non-trivial. No, not at all. Did you ever think that when you were joining this, you know, you were a young, you know, young design engineer, that someday you'd be the CEO of a company with how many, how many employees? We've now got uh, over 5,500 employees. 5,500 employees. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I never anticipated that. I, I wasn't thinking I was going to end up in a managerial role, running businesses. You know, I was, when I joined... Um, really interested in the technology. I still am. Yeah. Only really interested in you know hands-on building it myself. Um, I've kind of uh, you know moved on from that. You know, got that uh, scratched that itch, and now the uh, challenges of of growing the company uh, and the opportunities we have now as being part of the SoftBank Group. You know, that's really intellectually stimulating as much as the technology is as well. How did you? I mean, it's incredible to go from an engineering role to such a giant managerial role. What did you? How did how did you learn to do it? And what was kind of the? What advice would you give someone who's finally sees themselves suddenly kind of you know just getting more and more responsibility or doing a, a role they never thought they'd yeah. be doing? 
So, I mean, it really did kind of come around organically. There were just bigger roles to do. Um, and, you know, I was fortunate enough that uh, um, the, the senior management of Arm were prepared to take a risk on me doing those roles. Um, so, you know, there were things I volunteered for. Some things I got a you know, bit of a gentle shove to, you know, suggest I should go and do these roles. Um, but taking on a, a diverse set of uh, jobs, um, getting these different experiences, you know, ultimately prepared me for being a CEO. Um, and within the company, you know, we, we've maintained that view that moving people around, um, moving people around internally between countries within different jobs, you know, just helps create more rounded um, uh, employees who are then versatile and can go and tackle new challenges. So, you know, I'm kind of the poster child for that, <laughs> going from being the yeah. most junior person to the CEO in 20 odd years. Um, uh, you know, and that, that for my career has worked out really well. And we'll be right back after this quick break. Uber disclosed a breach of 57 million passengers and drivers' records. Hackers accessed personal information like names and driver license numbers of the drivers and names, email addresses, and phone numbers of passengers. Though this breach was just recently announced, this personal information was actually stolen over a year ago. LifeLock detects a wide range of identity threats, threats you may miss by just monitoring your credit, like someone stealing from your 401k or committing a crime in your name. And if there's a problem, a U.S.-based identity restoration specialist will work to fix it. No one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but LifeLock can help you see more threats to your identity. Go to LifeLock.com or call 1-800-LIFELOCK. Use promo code Forbes, that's Forbes, for 10% off your LifeLock membership. Visit LifeLock.com and save 10% now. You mentioned one of your first, the company's big breaks was getting into the Nokia phones. Mm -hmm. At that time, did you ever think that we would have have something like the an iPhone or a, a Samsung in our pockets within you know two decades. Did, did, was there a hint of that, that these were going to have such impact on our lives, or was it just, oh, a portable phone, let's see what we can do with it? Yeah, I mean, certainly in the very early days, you know, when I joined the company, I think only the CEO had a mobile phone. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, really nobody could have predicted that cell phones were going to take off as they, as they did. Um, but, you know, I, th- I think in the, you know, by the mid-90s, it was pretty clear that mobile phones were going to be very, very uh, broad and pervasive. Um, and certainly, you know, there were early thoughts about, okay, you know, where can this go? Um, and I'd say late 90s was when we were starting to think about, um, although nobody called it a smartphone at the time, um, you know, some device that had different applications, it was maybe streaming video, um, you know, no one was thinking about e-commerce or search, but, you know, the, the fact that this thing could have a bigger screen and, yeah. and a camera and might do more, you know, the early thoughts were kind of circulating around, uh, around that time. Where do you? Th- I mean, just uh, while we're talking about you know the consumer space, where do you think we're heading with all with all these these phones, which are basically just supercomputers in our pockets? Oh, they're absolutely supercomputers in our pockets. Um, I think the you know more intelligence is going to go into your handset. Um, you know, you'll still make phone calls on it, but uh, um, you know the the screens keep getting better, the graphics processing capabilities get better, the processing, so uh, you know games are, are more responsive. Yeah, there's all of that, um, plus. With all the sensors that are going into phones, uh, camera, multiple cameras, multiple mm-hmm. microphones, um, the more I think phones will become, uh, smartphones will become much more personal. And when you add technology, um, when you add kind of um, machine learning technology, you can really get to the point where 
A phone can be understanding you in the context that you happen to be in, Mm -hmm. serving up information ahead of you asking for it, and really becoming an even more personal thing than it is today. When you put all those features in and then open up to you know, a, a world of developers, um, and, and this has been one of the real strong points of smartphones, mm. it's just this open platform that people can go and innovate around, then new applications, new business models are going to come from this phenomenal platform called the smartphone. You mentioned innovation. How does ARM stay I mean, ahead? of you know, You're in, a, in an area that's just moving blisteringly fast. There's so much innovation, so much disruption. Um, so you have to stay ahead of that of that curve. At the same time, you have to build things that work because you are the kind of backbone of so much of technology. How do you like balance being reliable, but at the same mm-hmm. time taking these kind of you know big risks and you know being ready for technology before the technology might even exist yet? Yeah, I think um, our, our business model really helps on that. Um, you know, the fact that we are licensing to the world semiconductor industry, and the fact that the um, because it's a microprocessor, you know, software is being written for ARM by, mm. by lots of people throughout the supply chain. It enables us to go and talk to lots of people, even if we aren't selling something to them directly. So um, we've got a, a phenomenal ecosystem of, of partners that we work with, um, and we invest a lot in dialogue with people who are exploring new applications mm. to try and understand what the processing requirements are going to be and then boil that down to a set of kind of roadmap products that our engineering teams can go off and go execute. And as they do that, they work closely with our lead licensees for the product to really tailor it and make sure it is um, going to work for the applications that we have in mind. So this kind of constant dialogue with um, both our direct licensees and others through the uh, supply chain helps us form a view of the future and then develop products for it. One thing that's, that's really interesting about our business is that you know, we're building things now that will go into a product in three, four, five years' time mm-hmm. and might ship for another decade after that. So we really do have to take a long-term view. What's helping now in this world of uh, extreme innovation and disruption is actually being part of the SoftBank group mm-hmm. um, and having the flexibility and the freedom to invest much more heavily into all the new areas that are emerging, invest more into our core roadmap, make sure our engineering teams are delivering on the commitments we've made to our partners, but at the same time taking a much longer-term, more speculative view on mm. some of these emerging markets, um, which will help grow the business long-term. Yeah, how has that changed been? Because, you know, you were um, you know, a CEO of a publicly traded company and a heavily watched publicly traded company. Mm-hmm. I remember a few of my buddies are, are tech traders and always talking about, you know, the ARM stock. And then suddenly, you you know, you're worried about, you know, investors worry about making that quarter in sales. Then SoftBank acquires you and you're, it seems like you have all the, you have all the, the upside of having a giant balance sheet of a, of a, but at the same time you're private so you can take that long-term view. Mm-hmm. How has that kind of changed your um, strategy and kind of your, your daily life as a CEO? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a big shift. You know, as a public company, you've got to be making a trade-off between the amount you're investing for the future and the amount that you're delivering today uh, in order to, you know, make sure your shareholders are happy. And, yeah. you know, ultimately, you're in business to make money on behalf of your shareholders, so you've, you've got to get that balance right. Yeah. But as a tech company, you do have to invest for the future, um, and we now have that opportunity as part of the SoftBank Group to invest more aggressively. So it's a big shift. Um, and, you know, if, if I'm honest, it's taken a little, little while to, for everyone in the company to get their heads around, you know, this new way of working. 
Um, but it's giving us that freedom to really think about the future. Uh, and as part of the SoftBank group, uh, you know, Massa makes decisions very quickly. He wants you know, speed. He's yeah. encouraging everyone <laughs> to go, 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 as he, as he says. He wants everyone to be crazy, as he, he told me before. <laughs> yep, he's, he's very proud of, uh, you know, the kind of crazy idea. Um, and, uh, you know, th- th- there's, a, there's just a, a vast array of companies in the group, uh, uh, an enormous amount of talent. And as we're talking through, you know, different application areas, you know, there's someone with some expertise somewhere else in the SoftBank mm-hmm. group. And Massa, you know, personally is very, um, uh, very, very kind of on top of forming connections uh, between mm-hmm. different, part, different companies in the group. And, you, and you're a UK-based company mm-hmm. and your ownership's in Japan. And obviously there's a lot of customers and clients all over the world and probably in the Valley as well. How do you kind of manage this giant you know, kind of time zone empire? Do you, well, live, do you live on a, a British Air uh, plane? Uh, n- not so much on British Airways, but uh, we, we <laughs> won't go about my uh, choice of airlines. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, um, yeah, as you say, we're, we're headquartered in the UK, uh, but we've always viewed ourselves as a global company. Um, you know, sadly, there is not much of a semiconductor industry in the UK, mm-hmm. so we don't have many customers there at all. Uh, and that's always been the case, even when there was, you know, a couple of handfuls of us in a in a barn in the Cambridgeshire countryside. <laughs> you know, um, I, I remember our, our then CEO saying, "Look, we're not going to build a global company from behind our desks in Cambridge. Yeah. So get on a plane, go to where the action is." Uh, we very early on started building teams in Japan and Korea and. Uh, California, because that's where the semiconductor uh, industry was at the time. So we've kind of always uh, lived on this view that, um, you know, we've got to be, uh, you know, working around the clock, uh, that there's something interesting happening somewhere where you aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're going to need people in, in uh, the regions close to the customers, um, people who really understand, you know, the, the kind of, you know, nuance behind what somebody says if English is not their first language. Um, somebody who can deal with an issue in real time and mm-hmm. speak the local language and help educate the rest of the company about business culture in, in you know, somewhere else. So, you know, we, we view ourselves as a global company. And uh, just as we've grown, that's kind of what we do. Has there been advantages being based in the UK? As you said, is not exactly known for being a semiconductor or even kind of tech hub and actually being very far away from a lot of those hubs in Asia and, and the States. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, there's pros and cons, but for sure, you know, growing arm as, as we've become successful, um, growing arm in Cambridge, which is a great place for technology. Um, there's, I think, there's been a lot of benefits to it. We've been able to attract people from all over the world and especially all over Europe uh, to come to uh, arm. So we've got, as I said, about five and a half thousand people. I think about two and a half thousand of those are in the UK. So it's our biggest single location. Um, and it is HQ, and you know, if you go there, it's like the United Nations. There's people from <laughs> all over the world um, who've come to ARM and, uh, and are making great contributions. Does Brexit make your life a lot more complicated now, or is it business as usual? Well, it kind of remains to be seen what yeah. impact Brexit's going to have. But, yeah, I, um, you know, whilst all of that was going on a year ago, my big concern for the business was, are we still going to be able to employ people from across mm-hmm. Europe? Uh, and not only that, we have a lot of uh, uh, people who already work for us who are from mainland Europe and a lot of people from the UK who are married to people from mainland Europe. So this question mark over what happens to people's residency status uh, post-Brexit actually happening, you know, that, that is kind of hanging over us and it's something that I worry about. Wow. And we'll be right back after this quick break to say support for the Forbes interview comes from Amica Insurance. 
We're living in the age of the discerning shopper when savvy consumers increasingly favor brands that value authenticity, ethics, and a great shopping experience. Amica is committed to being a company people trust. Visit meetamica.com slash Forbes and find out why 95% of Amica customers with combined auto and home policies stay with them. One more time, that's meetamica.com slash Forbes to find out more about Amica Insurance. Hey everybody, it's Chad Prather here, the guy that's unapologetically Southern on YouTube. Join me every Thursday for the Chad Prather Show exclusively here on Podcast One. I'm bringing armchair philosophy and observational humor to what's going on in the world as guests help me sort it all out. Nothing is off limits on the Chad Prather Show. Again, every Thursday, it's new episodes of the Chad Prather Show right here on Podcast One. Download and listen to new episodes exclusively on PodcastOne.com, the new Podcast One app, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts. When you're wearing the right outfit, it feels good. Like good hair day kind of good. Phone charge to 100% good. Getting dressed can feel just like that when you have a Trunk Club stylist. Because not only do we send you lots of outfits and accessories, we also teach you how to style them. And since we're a Nordstrom company, you know you'll be well taken care of. Look and feel great every single day with Trunk Club. Meet your personal stylist at trunkclub.com. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B.com. Um, kind of jumping around here, you mentioned obviously Arm was part of a spinoff of Apple. Did you have a, um, a lot of interaction with Steve Jobs? Uh, I never met Steve Jobs. I oh, mean, okay. it, when when Arm was uh, uh, so Arm was spun out of Acorn, it was a, mm-hmm. all the engineers came out of Acorn. Gotcha. It was a joint venture from a business perspective with Apple. Um, uh, that was at the time when Steve Jobs wasn't at Apple. The, oh, the okay. Newton came around while he was um, you know out of the company. So when he came back, they kind of um, I think that was probably around the time of our IPO anyway mm-hmm. um, and Apple obviously focused on a, did the kind of as has been well documented you know focusing on a very small number of products and the Newton was not one of them so that got that got killed as an Apple product I would say that'd be interesting I mean you have a fascinating career but if you're you know which being sandwiched between Steve Jobs and Masa-san would be quite a uh, quite <laughs> that a, would be a great yes, dinner party yes, it? great dinner party <laughs> um, kind of we, what are you excited about now like everything's moving so fast what is happening in the tech world that you really, you know, really jazzed about? Yeah, so I think that the big theme that's driving the tech world is is data. Um, you know, m- most of the presentations here at uh, the technical presentations here at, at Web Summit are about AI. Um, they're about IoT, and, and that's all about data. And that's one thing that's driving our company uh, in a big way. Whether it's uh, IoT devices to gather data, whether it's um, hardware to accelerate machine learning algorithms, um, e- either on, on edge devices or uh, in the network or in the cloud, you know that that's where we're spending our time thinking, because that's how computing is evolving. It's uh, it's moving beyond uh, regular programming, kind of linear code, to being much more about analyzing data and learning from it and uh, new applications that will come from that. So it's a big theme. That's kind of what we're, we're working on. Mm-hmm. Within that particularly, as IoT is a big part of that, the security issues that come up uh, in a world of a, a trillion connected devices, yeah, that's yeah, very different from yeah, a world of very, a few billion. It could be very scary. Uh, it could be. There are some, uh, you, you look at the cyber issues that happen you know, every day. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that may pale into insignificance if we don't do something about, um, you know, ahead of time, mm-hmm. how the IoT is going to be secured. So that's uh, a big theme within ARM. 
A few weeks ago, we published a security manifesto, a kind of call to action for the industry to come together to really focus on these uh, these problems, because it is going to take an ecosystem to mm-hmm. really rethink how security is done. Is there like a p- protocol that happens on your level, chip level, that kind of expands outward, or is it another person's... Um, well, there, there are things we can do yeah. uh, at the at the chip level. There are um, IP building blocks that we can create to allow devices to be built with security building blocks within them, mm-hmm. whether they're kind of encryption engines, whether they're um, uh, identities. Uh, very, there are very secure ways of putting like encryption codes, uh, keys on chip. So we can provide some of the building blocks. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing we also launched recently is is what we call PSA, Platform Security Architecture. So it's a recommendation for here is how we think you should build a chip uh-huh. to allow secure software to be built on top. And one thing that we're really advocating for is that um, given that uh, uh, cyber criminals find new ways to exploit existing hardware all the time, you need to move away from a world of a product is static. Mm-hmm. All the code it's ever going to run is in it when it leaves the factory. And in the same way as your laptop or your web browser might get updated on a regular basis to fix security issues, I think all electronic devices need to be like that. Hmm. So they need to be managed. So we're trying to provide some of the building blocks for that, but we do need companies come, to come together to work out how that's going to work and who's going to take responsibility for it. Because I don't think that's something that can just get dumped on the user. Yeah, you can't have... It's hard enough updating your uh, your smartphone, let alone if you have a thousand devices at home that yeah. monthly need the, you know that to get restarted and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I won't embarrass you by asking you, you know, ha- how you manage passwords, but, you know, most people I do ask are, you know, it's their password hygiene is not that great. No. So in a world of your house full of connected things, um, you know, human weakness is going to lead to security weaknesses. Um, and so, you know, as an engineer, you're trained to debug things and you look at the issues and you, you go, like, it's, it's the people, right? So <laughs> why don't we take the people out of the equation and why don't we use technology to solve these problems? And then we can have a much more secure and trusted Internet of Things. Well, my passwords are so good. Not I, Even I don't know what they are. So I spend half my time like, resetting, you know, resetting your passwords. passwords. Yes. Yeah, and complexity is the enemy of security. Yes. So that in itself is a bad thing. You write them down and you forget them. And, uh, well, it's great. It's I, appreciate, I appreciate all the time. I love to you – know, you're on the cutting edge of so much tech. Could you share with me like a bold prediction that will kind of shock everyone listening right now that might come in the next five or ten years? Ooh. Could be good, could be bad. Could be good, could be bad. Um, I mean, in terms of connected things, you know, we're predicting there'll be a trillion more connected devices. Uh, by a trillion. And that's everything from household appliances to light bulbs to thermostat to you oh, name it? Yeah, to, to you name it. I mean, as broad as uh, you know, sensors sitting in a field somewhere to work out when the crop should get fertilized or harvested or watered. You know, they're connected everything mm-hmm. in the concrete of the roads, helping manage traffic flow. Um, about your body monitoring, say, um, the quality of the air and the environment that you're in and uh, enabling a doctor to kind of relate where you've mm-hmm. been to you know, whatever issue you've just turned up with. Um, connected things anywhere and everywhere. And we think that one trillion's deployed by kind of 2035 time. Wow. So the doctors will know how much time we're in the bars, really, and not, not the gym? That's right. And, and it ra- that raises a very interesting uh, question about uh, the privacy of the data. Yep. And this is, again, something that we're trying to engage a debate around. Um, so y- as consumers, you know, we ought to know uh, where the data is going, who's got access to it, what they're going to use it for, and have some control over that. Uh, because otherwise, again, that erodes trust. And um, 
the more kind of um, uh, the more or the lack of transparency there is around how computers make decision about your data, I think the less people trust them. Wow. Yeah. Now this this uh, this whole field of data and AI should and can um, usher in a whole new world of enhancing human capability, providing new businesses. But if nobody trusts it, that's not going to happen. Hmm. That's a great place to end. Um, thank you again for joining us at Web Summit. Um, Simon Seeger is a CEO of Arm Holdings. I appreciate it. Thanks, Steve. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much. That's it for this episode of the Forbes interview. I'm Steve Bertoni. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with a question or comment, please reach us at interview at podcastone.com. Have you heard Spike's Car Radio here on Podcast One? It's comedian, actor, and writer Spike Ferrison sitting on the porch in Malibu talking to his famous friends about cars. My first guest is Jerry Seinfeld. He's right here. He was all right. Don't try to hug him. Or Chris Hardwick. I could feel everything on the road. I mean, it was right. basically like, it was like unprotected sex for driving. <laughs> Jeremy Piven. I hold you know what? I think you and Jerry are spiritually tied to cars, <laughs> and I respect it and I love it, but I don't quite get it yet, but I want to get it. Other past guests include Jason Bateman, Russell Peters, and even Adam Carolla. Mr. Adam I just Carolla. go with the queen. I mean, the king role has been filled, but the queen vacancies are You're open. the queen of all media. Get new episodes every Wednesday at podcastone.com, on the new Podcast One app or at Apple Podcasts. And if you like Spike's show, check out our other car shows like CarCast with Adam Carolla, Everyday Driver, or Shift and Steer, exclusively on Podcast One. When you're wearing the right outfit, it feels good. Like good hair day kind of good. Phone charge to 100% good. Getting dressed can feel just like that when you have a Trunk Club stylist. Because not only do we send you lots of outfits and accessories, we also teach you how to style them. And since we're a Nordstrom company, you know you'll be well taken care of. Look and feel great every single day with Trunk Club. Meet your personal stylist at trunkclub.com. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B.com. At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is... Tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.